0: Well, welcome back as we head into our 3. It is a delight to be joined again, once again, by Rabbi Pinchas Alush, A-L-L-O-U-C-H-E. That's how he spells his uh, his last name. He is the host of the Rabbi Alush podcast, heard on Apple Podcasts uh, once a week, three to five minutes that uh, I think can change your life. As I say, I I listen to them over and over again, several times to get the full impact, which I probably still don't get. He is also the head rabbi at Congregation Beth Tefillah in Scottsdale, T-E-F-I-L-L-A-H, House of Prayer. All are welcome, Jewish, non-Jewish, observant, non-observant. Rabbi Alush, it's good to see you. It's a
1: delight to be back. Thank you, sir.
0: And you're bringing reinforcements today, I see. Right,
1: my dear friend, you're visiting.
0: Visiting from L.A., (laughs) It takes a special person to leave L.A. at this time of year where there's an ocean to come to the desert. You know, usually the movement of Jewish history is out of the desert <laughs> and away from <laughs> and Anyway, Rabbi Alush, your um, podcast this week and the portion of the week in the Torah or the Bible want to talk about um, the selfie versus the other, or the othery, as you put it, mm-hmm. uh, the othery mentality. Um, you start with a story of um, of a woman that uh, was famous, I think, on YouTube, if I'm not mistaken, for taking a selfie in an art gallery in front of several sculptures. And uh, the sculptures didn't survive, but she got her picture, huh?
1: She got a picture, yeah, yeah. a picture that apparently costed $200,000 because yeah. of the damage she made yeah. by taking it. That's right. Yes, so that's that's the idea, the most expensive selfie. But it's not just a selfie that I'm going after. There's nothing wrong in taking a selfie from time to time. But it's really the selfie mentality that is expressed also by the way we take pictures. If you think about this, you know, I grew up in the 80s. And uh, we never took pictures of ourselves. We took pictures of nature, of the people around us, of events. But, uh, you know, we live in the I generation. Some call it the narcissistic age. And it's reflected also through the way people take pictures. We now take selfies. That's what we do. Every picture has to include me. But maybe what is around you is a little more interesting. Maybe what is around you should be the focus. But no, it's me and then what's around me. And it's 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 quite sad because if we were other-oriented, I think there would be also less maladies in the world, not just mental maladies, self-maladies, but I think cultural maladies too. So that's that's what the podcast is about.
0: You almost have to think a little bit about the um, the personality of someone who goes to a museum to take a selfie. I mean the idea of going to a museum, it's in the word muse, something that will inspire you to look at something else, some other art or some other expression. But then you go and make it about yourself. It shows you how magnetic the draw, the narcissism is. It shows you how magnetic and strong that um, that that interest in self really is. That you would go to a place theoretically designed for other people to muse, amuse themselves, see a- other things, but the focus is you while you're there. That's
1: right. It's an arrogance of sorts too, isn't it? The, yes, it's I mean, an I don't arrogance. I don't want to bury this girl, woman, maybe, but yeah, no, 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 I don't not. know her. But maybe it's a subconscious right, one. Yeah, but certainly an arrogance of some sort but i think that the root of it is is just simply this idea that we have more, become more and more accustomed to and that is that every we are the center of the world and you know it's interesting because every year in december uh, this research comes out that speaks about the most used words in the english language and i remember reading the research for 2022 And apparently one of the most used words that was number four on the list, number five on the list was me, myself, and I. Uh Now, I'm I'm sure that, again, a decade ago, two decades ago, those words, me, myself, and I, would find themselves in the top 20, top 30. Today, they're in the top five. And the question is, what becomes of society? that he's so me-oriented, that he's so narcissistic? Yeah. Well, I think
0: one of the things is it becomes less family-oriented because family is about certain kinds of gives and takes and respects for others. I think it helps explain some of the decline in marriage rates, which are substantial, Um, the decline in uh, religious uh, affiliation and attendance, which Mm -hmm. is also substantial because you're putting yourself above something higher than you. I, I think a lot of this started in the 70s. Tom Wolfe—we've talked a little bit about this, Rabbi Tom Wolfe, wrote this famous essay about the 70s called The Me Decade, where it was all about you know um, turning away from traditional religions and really into things that were better described as cults, which were about making you feel good about the problems that you had and rather than feeling um, the need to address them in a more outer-directed way. We've done this, too, before, but I looked up the dates before you came. So the magazine People comes out in 1974. The magazine Us comes out in 1977. And the magazine Self comes out in 1979. A steady movement from a collective to an individual identity in our culture.
1: That's fascinating. Fascinating. But I think think you're right. You pointed at what happens to the family unit and to that which is around us. I want to point to that which – to that – which happens in year, okay. in, in the me mm-hmm. bubble, in the me circle, because um, yeah, let's put it this way. I'm a big fan of children, mm-hmm. of the innocence of children, the sure. purity of children. Right. If you stop a child in the street and you ask him, hey, how are you feeling today? What's going through your mind today? That child is going to look at you with, with this awkward look and say, what, what are you talking about? I'm just busy enjoying life. Maybe that explains why they are indeed so happy. Because it's not about me for children. It's about life. Mm -hmm. It's about living. Mm -hmm. It's about spreading that joy. Mm -hmm. That's how you achieve happiness. The more you're immersed in that me, the more you'll discover that your me is imperfect, and the more sometimes you'll also realize that these imperfections are creating all these negative emotions in you.
0: That's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought of it that way with respect to children because I think and talk a lot about the innocence of children too, but I hadn't thought about it in that way. They're uh, absent a psychological or a psychiatric condition that they may have endemically or congenitally been born with. A child is naturally not really anxiety-ridden. They naturally do want to explore. I mean, that's why we have to have guardrails and parental authority to make sure they don't go too far, right, right, with the pool or the water or the mud or the tree or what have you. But they are naturally uh, curious about the world. They want to explore and wonder Mm -hmm. And uh, they want to meet and be with other people. And by the way, the other thing they don't get upset about is different races. That's something that adults – that's another anxiety adults have implanted right. into them. They, they, they don't see that sort of thing until we teach them about it. It's mm-hmm. an old Rogers and Hammerstein song. You mm-hmm. have to be carefully taught. You have to be carefully taught to hate. Mm-hmm. You have to start at six or seven or eight. Right.
1: These kids don't have it until we adults give it to them, right? Right. Or oh, as Mark Twain said, I'm going to make sure that my schooling doesn't get in the way yes. of my education. Right. <laughs> right. right. But it's true. It's true. And uh, you know, to use another example, it's, it's fascinating to me that when children fight five minutes later, they're yeah. best friends. Right. When adults fight five minutes later, they're still not speaking. Yeah. Five years later, they still not. Fifty years later, maybe. Yeah. And the question is why. Yeah. And I think that I've reached the conclusion that's because children prefer to be happy over being right. Yeah. Adults prefer being right over being happy. I think that's,
0: that's a really nice way to put it. Um, yeah. You can choose in life to be right or you can choose to be happy. Right. There's a wonderful line in the movie Harvey. You ever seen it? It's an old Jimmy Stewart movie where he says, I've learned in life from something my mom told me. I can be uh, oh so smart or oh so pleasant. I've tried smart. I've preferred pleasant.
1: Mm-hmm. Reminds me of that. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. And and the difference is this. The essential difference between the two is that when children cho- choose to be happy yeah. – what they are really choosing is to be life-focused, right. other-focused. Right. When you are choosing to be right, yeah. you are choosing me-focused. It's it really my is. Justice. That's exactly it's right. Me. It's the ego,
0: isn't right. it? It's right. the ego speaking. Yeah, exactly. And pride, one might say. Exactly. Ego and pride. You have a line you used in your podcast, and I, I found it tremendously pregnant with importance. Our most expensive possession— is our sense of self and purpose. The important word there, I think, is purpose. There is a sense of self, but for a purpose, right?
1: Right, because the ultimate question, I'm going to quote Mark Twain again then. Uh, he says that the two most important days of life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. huh. And the big question of life, indeed, is why. Why was I sent here to this world? Why was my soul picked to be sent on this mission? And once we discover the why, the purpose, the mission itself, then we can uh, uh, really uh, own that most expensive possession.
0: Before we do the transfer and how this relates to the Bible Torah portion of the week, um, I want to spend one more segment with you, um, and we'll quote two Jewish psychologists. One you quote in your podcast, Victor Frankl. Mm-hmm. The other one I want to talk to, who naturally comes up in these discussions, is a guy named Martin Buber, who has this I-Thou concept. So, you quoted Frankel, Victor Frankel, who many people know from his um, from his book uh, "Man Search for Meaning. Thank me. you. His yes. famous book "Man Search for Me." <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I knew you had it in you. Man, search for meaning. We'll talk about that um, and what he had to say about what life wants from you. We'll do it with Rabbi Pinchas Alush when we come right back. Rabbi Pinchas Alouche is my guest, A-L-L-O-U-C-H-E, the host of the Rabbi Alouche podcast, heard on Apple Podcasts. He's also the head rabbi at Congregation Beth Tefillah in Scottsdale on Shea Boulevard, where all are welcome, T-E-F-I-L-L-A-H. Uh, The self versus uh, the other mentality or the other mentality, mentality, as you put it. Uh, So you quote Viktor Frankl. This audience knows a lot of Viktor Frankl from his book, The Man's Search for Meaning, where he talks talks about two races, uh, the decent and the indecent. But you you picked up something from uh, Dr. Frankl about asking what life wants from you, not what you want from life, helping us get over the ego and the pride as well, I take it.
1: Exactly. And you know, Victor Frankl came from a very difficult and personal experience uh, drawing this conclusion. But he was in the Holocaust, he was in a concentration camp. And he realized that what um, made people want to live, even though they had all the good reasons to put an end to their lives and to their torture, was the sense of purpose. Yeah. For one person, it was the family that he or she wanted to create one day. For another person, it was a profession or calling that they wanted to pursue, and that sense of purpose, that sense of mission of, of 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 meaning, as he calls it, is really what gave them this want, this desire to live. And he concludes in his book for all of your listeners who read it, and I, if you haven't read it, I would warmly recommend everyone. To read it but he concludes that indeed life is not about asking what i want from life but it's about asking what life wants from me because there and only there will we find a purpose and therefore only there will we want to continue to live and to then actualize that purpose
0: it's such an important point i've talked to people who have read that book five six or more times and i uh, none of them picked up on a footnote in that book that I picked up a long time ago. The first time I read it there's a footnote in that book where he talks about we have a statue of liberty on the east coast. He wants to build a st- or wanted to build or wants someone to build a statue of responsibility on the West Coast because he thinks liberty without responsibility is effectively anarchy or tyranny or can lead to libertinism, if you will, but that we all have responsibility and we should be reminded of that. That's an outwardly directed purpose in life, too, the idea that you are responsible to something, some community, someone, perhaps even God.
1: But th- that's right. And I think it's a message that resonates so profoundly today because everyone speaks about rights. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, it's my right, right to say this. It's my right to act like this. But beyond rights, we also have responsibilities. Right. It's not just about what society owes you. It's about what you owe society. Or, you know, to quote John F. Kennedy, the famous line, us not what uh, the country can do for you, what you can do for your country. If you don't have that in life, mm-hmm. then your life will be at the very least miserable. Mm-hmm. At the very worst Purposeless mm-hmm. and
0: meaningless. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the hardest people to deal with are the egocentric maniacs, or you know, people who only look to themselves and not to something bigger. Which gets me to the Martin Buber thesis. It's very complicated, and I don't want to get too terribly deep into it because people can just go crazy with this "I Thou" stuff. But it boils down to the notion that you get meaning from relationships. That right. you get meaning from the kinds of things we were talking about that are on such dec- in such decline. We were talking about the. For, Previous segment, whether it's a religious community or religious attendance, church or synagogue, or family, or marriage rates, all of these in decline. It's not a surprise that we're seeing society kind of do things that were, kind, you know, we unheard of when we are now engaging in these kinds of isolationist, uh, selfish activities, or at least non-communitarian activities that we have also never gone through. There is a correlation here. Absolutely.
1: And in fact, if we want to go deeper into Martin Buber's Mm -hmm. words, he compares the I-thou relationship with what he calls the I-it relationship. That's right. That's right. And he draws the conclusion that unfortunately, many relationships are really an I-it relationship where I relate to the other as an it, as an object, Mm -hmm. which really means that I'm in this relationship just because of what you can do for me, just like an object, as long as I need this particular object, then I'll have a relationship with it. If I won't need it anymore, then goodbye. I'll throw it in the garbage just like this water bottle that you kindly gave me here walking into the studio. As long as I need it, I have a relationship with it. It's an object. It's an I, it. As long as when I will finish the water in the bottle, I won't need it anymore. I'll throw it away. Unfortunately, many relationships are like that. People yeah. relate to the other as an it. What can you do for me? Why am I in this relationship? Simply because of the pleasure you bring me, of, of, of the great rewards you bring me. Yeah. But that's not a real, real relationship. The relationships that do bring meaning are the relationships that are the I-thou relationship. I'm devoted to you regardless of what you bring me or not. Yeah. I am in love with you just for the sake of love, yeah. not because I'm receiving anything in return. When I have that level of devotion to that which is greater than myself, there I can find meaning. We. It's been a while since we did talk about this, but that I-it concept that you bring up is
0: really interesting because it is – it's been an, a, a a concern of mine for some time that that too many relationships are treated as disposable, and it is probably because of what you just said. They are seen as what can it do for me? How does it make me feel? What is not? It's not about a bigger purpose. We do treat other human beings or other institutions or other things of value and importance as uh, too cheap and too disposable, easily disposable.
1: Right. Absolutely. Marriage would be yeah. one thing. M- marriage marriage is a good example. Look, I think many marriages are based on this I it concept. Mm-hmm. So I feel lonely. I need company. Mm-hmm. So please come fill that void that, that I have. So are you in this relationship really to love? Or are you in a relationship just for selfish reasons because you need company? Mm-hmm. And it's true on so many other levels, right? Even if you take a concept as as as, as holy, many people might think it's coarse, but as holy as sex. Mm-hmm. If I am in a relationship just for sex, for my personal pleasure, then it's an I-it relationship. There's nothing there. There's no meaning there. But if I am in this relationship to give pleasure, to, to devote myself to the other, then that relationship is meaningful. Then sex itself is meaningful. Then intimacy is holy. Or to create another being or to create another thing right. something bigger than bigger ourselves than myself. right yeah that that's exactly right
0: otherwise any of these things any good thing can be turned into a bad thing and it seems to me that any of these things can turn into addictions. I mean there's no no real problem with certain things as long as they're used for a better and higher purpose than just self-immediate gratification.
1: Right, you know? exactly. You know, if I may, uh, I'll, I'll quote my beloved rabbi again, Adin Steins, of blessed memory, who would use the fish analogy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we've, if, we've, if we've ever spoken about this, but he speaks about this king who s- instructed his servants one day to get him this fish that he loved straight from the sea. Let's say it was a sandwich. Mm -hmm. So the fishermen are out there and they're saying, the king that we have loves this type of fish. Let's go find the salmon. And the king loves salmon and the king loves salmon. Finally, they find the salmon. They say, yes, we're so happy the king loves salmon. We find a piece of salmon for him. And the salmon is listening to the fisherman and he's saying to himself, oh, great. The king loves salmon. That means he's going to throw me back in the sea if he really loves me. I can't wait to beat this king. These fishermen are treating me awfully. Anyway, they bring him to the palace. And the chefs there in the kitchen are having an argument. How should they slice the salmon for the fish for the king because the, fish lo- the king loves salmon? So they decide to summon the king. The king storms into the kitchen. And he says, oh, thank you for getting me the fish that I love. And the salmon hears that and says, oh, great. Now he's going to throw me back. And then the king goes on to say, well, slice him this way and not that way. Yeah. And the fish concludes, oh, the king doesn't love me. He loves the pleasure that I bring to him. So he loves himself.
0: Nice. Nice, nicely done. Rabbi Alush, let's talk about uh, the last part of the Book of Numbers when we come back, which I think we wrap up with this week's Torah portion, if I'm not mistaken. Rabbi Alush and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Rabbi Pinchas Alush is my guest, as we try and do every Friday and kind of move us from the workaday... Uh, turmoil of politics and policy to get us into a um, more Sabbath-oriented and restful mood for the weekend. We love to have him here on Fridays when he's in town. He is the um, host of the Rabbi Alush podcast and the head rabbi, chief rabbi of Congregation Beth Tefillah in Scottsdale. where all are welcome. All right, this, is, uh, this week's uh, biblical portion is uh, f- the last part of the book of Numbers, if I'm not mistaken. That's
1: correct. And it's about must say are the names of the portions this week. Right, was, uh, which is about portion. traveling? Right, that's correct. It's about the 42 stops in the desert mm-hmm. that uh, the Jewish people encamped in as they traveled to the promised land. Uh, but it is about not just the stops themselves, but about how they saw every moment mm-hmm. as an eternal moment, mm-hmm. as a moment that was most important. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because... The, you know, the stops weren't pre-planned. Yep. God t- did not tell them how long they'll be staying in one spot. Maybe it was to teach us, indeed, to embrace the moment that we have in front of us with our full might, because we may not have another moment, and we don't know how long this moment will last either. So let's delve into it and 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 really uh, mm-hmm. actualize every single opportunity in it find the value in every moment
0: we've been afforded there's a lot in this one Uh, it starts with vows the importance of vows which in an interesting way kind of relates to what we were saying in the previous couple few segments about uh the the importance of vow really being
1: something that you have to keep because it's a commitment to god or someone else right right yes what is unsaid though uh, and that is mentioned in other places mainly in leviticus but that is that even though, yes, vows carry tremendous weight, we are discouraged from taking vows mm-hmm. because we recognize that vows can shackle us, mm-hmm. words mean something. Mm-hmm. Words have power in Judaism. Mm -hmm. And when I vow, when I take a vow, when I promise to do something, then I'm tied to that which I promise to do. Mm -hmm. And that may shackle me. By the way, this is why it's interesting because, you know, the holiest day in the Jewish calendar is Yom Kippur. How does it begin? Not by uh, some melody that, uh, you know, makes us fly into the highest of heavens, but rather by a very technical prayer, a prayer that is called Kol Nidre in which we annul all our vows. And the why, annulling of vows. Right. right. The nullifying of vows. A, right. a, and the question, obviously, is why, why begin the holiest day of the year with the annulment of vows? Mm-hmm. Why is something so technical attached to something so holy? And the answer is because we recognize that in order to become holy, mm-hmm. in order to indeed fly to the highest of the heavens, we have to unshackle ourselves from the vows that we took. Yeah. We cannot say hello, freedom, if we haven't said goodbye, vows. Mm-hmm. And that's also hinted in this week's portion.
0: The, the importance of words, mouth, right, uh, language uh, that you're communicating, this is worth spending a, another minute on if you don't mind because you're right. Uh, it, 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 the the vow is, is, is extremely important. You have to be impeccable with how you talk. That is what and what you promise, because mm-hmm. you will be held to it, or should be held to it. And oftentimes, it's impossible to be, impossible to be held to it. There's even a little understanding, if I'm not mistaken, that you may become a different person by the time you have to keep that vow,
1: mm-hmm. right? That's right. That's right. And and thus the impeccability of, of our of how we use words. Right. Right. And thus vows are, are discouraged. Mm-hmm. But you're right. If 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 you know, we, we want to go into the spiritual aspect yeah. of things. Everything that we do creates some type of energy, right. energy that surrounds us, that envelops us. Mm-hmm. Words create tremendous energy. Positive words create positive energy. Negative words create negative energy. I don't know, Seth, if you can feel that. I visit many homes, uh, you know, as a rabbi, and and sometimes you walk into a home and you feel this negative mm-hmm. energy. Yes, you feel sure. like, uh, it like gets to your yeah, chest, right? And and I have no doubt each and every time, and I've never been mistaken, that that negative energy is created because of the words right. pronounced of in that course, house. Of course. The words are words of tension, of, of curses, of, of, of fights. Of fights. And the energy is negative, and it's felt by anyone who comes to visit it. And it's true the opposite, on the opposite side. Positive words create positive energy. And therefore, there's tremendous emphasis on the words that we say and how careful we have to be, especially when it comes to vows, because vows – Add another layer of and another uh, uh, amount of of weight to that energy that we spoke of. And
0: to go back also to the use of words and how they affect children. The use of words by adults to children can create a menace or a psychological head case for the rest of their lives, or they can create a self es- full of self esteem, well adjusted personality. The use of words with children is extremely important as well. Something we need to be just as cognizant of. Okay. Let's talk when we come right back, Rabbi, about, well, gosh, do we want to do War with the Medianites? Do we want to do Cities of Refuge? Do we want to do the death penalty? You pick. City of Refuge and death penalty, maybe?
1: Yes, <laughs> whatever you wish.
0: Rabbi Alush I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. It's been a delight having Rabbi Pinchas Alush with us. He spells his last name A-L-L-O-U-C-H-E. I do that so you can follow him on Facebook, or you can uh, get his podcast, which he puts out weekly, at Apple Podcasts. His congregation is Beth Tefila in Scottsdale, where all are welcome, religious or not, Jewish or not. There's so much in this, uh, in this uh, weekly portion that we were talking about. We had one of... A week or two ago, that was named Pinchas, which is your first name. Mm-hmm. And there's an Aleutian here. I don't know if you see it spelled differently. That's, or, or, that's is right. That, is there that is. where your is that your name? Does that come from that as well? There's a, a place called Aleutian. I think that's it, correct. Yeah, it it
1: originates in in that in that in the name of that place. Okay, one of the forty-two stops in the desert. Yeah. That we spoke about right. Was I was Aleutian. In rereading it, I
0: thought, hmm. all right, <laughs> there's no and stop. But um, okay, so as the the Jewish people are commanded to go in and take the land of Canaan or what will become Israel. It's interesting that if I read it right, the very first thing they're to do when they get there, if I read it right, is to build what are called cities of refuge. That's right.
1: Okay. Cities of refuge. It's a very interesting concept. Why is that the first thing, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, And there's something very, very personal that we ought to learn from this. But let's talk about the concept first. Cities of refuge were cities that were established for people who unintentionally murdered others, unintentionally is really the emphasis. So killed, really, then, yeah. That's right, that's right. So in other words, if uh, someone is uh, on the 12th floor of a big building and he throws away a rock and unintentionally it hits someone and that someone dies, then this person would have to flee to that city of refuge where he would stay for a very long time. And uh, the idea was because... No act that we do is really unintentional. It's, it's rooted in our psyche that um, maybe is molded by the behavior that, that uh, we engage in. So we can't be careless. So we can be careless. But we but can't even, be held. We're, okay, go ahead. Right. right and, yeah. and by the way, this is way before Sigmund Freud, right. where we really spoke of the subconscious. Yeah. Many things in the subconscious uh, we are not aware of. But they exist because of who we are and how we behave in life. So what this person is told, hey, you just killed someone unintentionally. Fine. We won't punish you. But we need you to go and self-reflect. Mm-hmm. Go to the city of refuge. Mm-hmm. Go look inwards. There's something deep that you have to dig because nothing happens unintentionally. Everything is guided by either our conscious or our subconscious. And if it's something negative, you better get to the bottom of it and uproot that negativity in order to return to life now as a better citizen.
0: Is there a duality to the city of refuge that it is a place you got to go spend some time out. It's like a timeout. You got to go reflect, but there's also to keep him safe from the mob, right?
1: That's right. That was the other the other purpose. The dual very purpose, good. Right. Yeah. Because the relatives of the person murdered yeah. could right. very well come and take their revenge. Right. We want to keep him safe. So that was the other purpose of the city of refuge.
0: Then we get into um, a really interesting discussion of when the, m- the killing is literally murder because it is intentional, and people have asked me, uh, where, where is Judaism or where does the rabbi stand
1: on the death penalty? It's, pretty, it's the death penalty. It's pretty clear here. Hmm. And right. yet, and yet. It's, and yet, yeah. and yet. So it's a good question, and I know it's a question I've been asked also countless times. What does Judaism think of the death penalty that I think is now— Legal in how many states in in, uh, in America? I couldn't tell you. Oh, yeah, but but uh, it's quite prevalent. So look, uh, the death penalty is very much prevalent in the Torah. We see that people are punished with the death penalty. But the way we get there is very different than the way American law gets there. And that is that if a person was accused of murder, say, then he could face the death penalty. But he would have to be investigated in such ways that it was almost impossible to find him fully guilty. And even if he was found guilty, this is what Jewish law says, on the way to being executed, if someone out of the blue came to the rabbinic court and said, hey, actually, no, we think that he's innocent, that we stop everything, we bring him back, and he has to go through the entire process again, which also uh, is reflective of Jewish history because very, very few people, have ever been executed through the death penalty in Jewish history. It does not mean that we don't believe in the death penalty, that we don't that it's not part and parcel of the Torah. But the way we get there, I think, is very different, as mentioned.
0: There's an interesting spiritual component to it, in a sense, too, if I might, uh, Rabbi, that one of the things we learned from the weekly portion here on the death penalty is that you cannot pay ransom— For murder, you cannot pay a family. You cannot compensate them. The guilty cannot compensate the family of the innocent who is murdered. And the reading I got on that, if I am correct, if I picked this up right, it's because the soul of the victim is not the property of that family, but to God.
1: Very good. Very well said. This touches upon another idea, and that is: Can we forgive Mm -hmm. terrorists? Say, Mm -hmm. can I, as a Jew, forgive? Uh, the Nazis mm-hmm. that killed some of my ancestors—I mm-hmm. have no right to do so. Yeah, because I am not them. Right. Only the victims can forgive. Right. We can't forgive on behalf of others. Mm-hmm. You know, General Schwarzkopf in the Gulf War famously said when he was asked whether uh, he can forgive terrorists, mm-hmm. he said, "It's not my job. That's God's job. Mm-hmm. My job is to make the meeting between them." Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'll make the introduction.
0: i <laughs> put it to a different judge. That's you, know, right. <laughs> you like that, David? <laughs> there is this very, on that point, very, very unforgettable moment in Hannah Arendt's book on Eichmann in Jerusalem, where she is there watching his trial. And this is obviously very difficult because, as you put it, um, the country of Israel and the Jewish people use the death penalty very, uh, very sparingly. Uh, but she said after all the testimony, what the, what, the, what the trial concluded was, in her words, we have found someone and we, we have found someone who we simply cannot share the earth with. Mm. we simply it's a, it's a haunting line isn't it we mm. simply cannot share the earth with you and thus you will have to face this judgment um there are these evils that are recognized that that do require at that
1: level an right. ultimate
0: an ultimate sanction
1: yes and it's interesting because that is indeed how they dealt with this evil man adolf eichmann yeah. who was really responsible for the death of Millions of people in the concentration camp in the war, not only could they not share the earth while alive with him, uh-huh. but even when he was hung to That's death, right. uh, right. hung, he was cremated, That's right. and they took his ashes, put them in the water, yeah. uh, exactly in the international waters. Right beyond the israeli line of the mediterranean They literally could not share the earth with they literally him literally could not share the earth and if i read the
0: stories right he was smiling on his way to the gallows mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah so there's a lot in here and the one thing we didn't get to and maybe we can preserve it for another time was the very important part of your podcast about god commanding moses and how he was supposed to and how his he was supposed to command his troops to go to war against the midianites um, and knowing that those who would go would, would ultimately pay their own last full measure of devotion when they went to war.
1: We'll just put a, we'll put a pin in that grenade for put next a pin time. On that, but if I may, yes, the last 10 seconds here, I think it's all connected okay. because we cannot share the earth with evil people. Right. We cannot share the earth with bad energy as we were speaking about. We have to ask ourselves, and all, all of your listeners, including myself, have to ask themselves, what am I going to share the earth with nice. today? Who am I going to share the earth with? Nice. And what am I going to share the earth with? Nice. And I hope the answer is only positive.
0: Nicely done,
1: Rabbi. Well
0: done. Rabbi Pinchas Salush has been my guest. I'll be back with a concluding thought.
1: Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, sir.
0: There's talk of uh, recession, there is obvious inflation, there are bank failures, and there is stock market volatility, and when you ask yourself how do you invest in this kind of environment, why ReFi has an answer, they have an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return, and it's not tied to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose with no loss of principle if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure, collateralized portfolio that is offered by Y-Refi, and they are based here, headquartered here locally. I encourage you to stop by their offices. They're on Scottsdale Road and the 101. I've been there, and I can tell you, you won't get a sales pitch, and no one's going to ask you to sign anything. When you meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I trust them so much, and you can too. Y-Refi is a due diligence-approved firm. Where you can earn up to a ten and a quarter percent rate of return. That's right, a ten point two five percent fixed rate of return. Check them out at InvestYreFi That's Invest, the letter Y, then R E F Y com. Or call eight 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 Y Refi34. Eight 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 yrefi thirty 34 Just thinking about conversation with Rabbi Alush. We hardly ever talk in advance about what we're gonna talk about. I know it's gonna be related to his podcast, and I know it's gonna be related to the Biblical portion of the week or the Torah portion of the week, but when I bring up you know some of these outside scholars like Martin Buber stuff, I you know I always wonder should I check in and make sure he's he's good with that. I'm always very comforted and impressed that he usually knows more about these references than I do. So I'm going to continue not to um, not to pre-plan or prepare uh, with him, but it reminds me of uh, how important it is to find good and smart educators in your world, in your life, in your environment, and to keep them around you. The Talmud does ask, it says, who is wise? He learns from every man, which is what bothers me so very much about um, the censorship world that we are now living in, particularly in the place that should be the least censored, like the college and university campus. And you think about what they did— to such a great scholar who has so much to teach the world like Dennis Prager here at ASU back in February when he was denounced by 39 professors as being a white nationalist merely because they disagreed with him and to dissuade other students and faculty from hearing such a great scholar on public policy, on social policy, on family policy, and yes, even on biblical uh, studies. So uh, anyway, we... um, just so you know, the Arizona State Senate is going to be holding a joint hearing on this next Tuesday. Uh, state lawmakers launch committee to investigate free speech at Arizona's public universities. That's going to be at the state legislature with regard to that incident and series of incidents that emanated from it at ASU. And uh, Dennis Prager and I have both been invited to testify before that joint committee at the state legislature. So we will be doing that Tuesday. Uh, you may want to keep your eyes out for that. God bless you all, folks. I am Seth Leapson. He is David Dahl. Until Monday, class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells.